You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. First Peter chapter 1. We are in verses 13 through 16. Today will be kind of like a part two to last week. It was kind of a cliffhanger a little bit. We just ran out of time and I couldn't get to uh, the end of it. Um, but what we're going to do today is we're going to do a little cliffhanger into um, dovetailing it in with this text this morning, the text uh, that we have, the verses 13 through 16. But if you would, if you would look ahead, or look behind, I should say, to verses 8 and 9, let me start there. It won't be on the screen, but it will be, I, I will read it, and then we'll go to verse 13. Because I think verse 8 and 9 frame this whole chapter. I think verse 8 and 9 frame what I want to talk about today. Um, they frame even the, what we're supposed to be um, doing as, as followers of Christ. So let me read verses uh, 13, uh, I mean verses 8 and 9 and then 13 through 16. Cool? Everybody with me? Yes. Great. Thank you, Ralph. <laughs> Just recognize your voice. All right, so um, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you, Christian, are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, we open our, our hearts to you, um, our minds, the best that we, that we can right now to receive um, uh, kind of a, a reforming of, of our thoughts and our thought patterns and our life and our life patterns. And for those in here who, who, who are, um, are Christian, who claim to be Christian, who are born again followers uh, of you, God, I pray that our, our minds be conformed to the image of of your son, that, that our, our lives would be changed, that you would, um, that you would do some uh, reformation of our own souls here this morning. And God, I ask for those that, um, that do, not, do not believe, I mean, they believe, but they, they might not believe upon Jesus, they don't believe in you. I pray that, that you, would, you would give all of us this capacity of, of realizing how fragile and wonderful faith is, and it's a gift. And I pray, God, that, that we would come in here with like open hands to go, Lord, God, we're here, and we want you to speak, and if you are real, we ask that you would speak. And so, God, I pray that sometimes those simple prayers like that, just if you're real, speak to me. Um, you answer, and you answer uh, vividly. You answer miraculously, Lord. Um, you answer honestly. So today, would you speak to us, God? Um, I ask for strength, um, clarity of thought, um, a passion in, in even the things that I'm I'm going to be communicating. Uh, I ask, ask that, God, that you would anoint me. Lord, there's no way I can stand up here in my own strength. That's just silly. And so I pray that you would use me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Um, last week, we looked, about, we looked at why Christianity was so strange. Last week, we called the teaching um, the strangeness of Christianity. And so what I did at the very beginning, well, actually, I did the whole time um, in that sermon, was I talked about how strange Christianity was, how strange it is that you and I are called, in First Peter, born-again Christians, and how crazy and strange that sounds when, if you're not a fa- if you're, like, brand new to this church and you're brand new to Christianity, it's the first time you ever were exposed to Christianity. And I said, Christianity is you being born again. And you would go, what? That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. Last, year, last week we looked at Nicodemus and when Nicodemus went to Jesus and Jesus was like, started talking to him and Jesus said, uh, and if you want to receive the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus was like, wait, what? Like I'm too old. Like my mom, I don't understand. Like I can't, how? And it's a really strange and weird concept. And it's, it's that weird. It's that weird. And so Peter says that that's what makes Christianity so strange, that we're reborn a second time without the help of our physical mothers. We're reborn, and that is strange. And that we're reborn, and once we're reborn, those who are Christian, we're reborn into an eternal hope. And so for Christians, Christians are reborn into an eternal hope. And that kind of flies in the face of our modern secular culture that is very materialistic, very like we were here because of this and that and this, and, and when we die, it's just, it just lights out. But we know there's something more than that. I mean, we know that. We want to believe that, and we, we kind of fight those feelings off. There's, but we know deep down there is something more. And Christians say, yeah, that, that something more is God and eternity. And, and followers of Christ have this eternal hope where all our hope is in, is, is, is in God's coming future. That's strange. We're also guided by a God who we love, but we can't see, as it says here, as I started off in reading. That's strange, too. And it's strange that we, we follow a book that's really old. I mean, this book is old. I mean, this one isn't. But like, the words are, right? It's really old. And then a lot of us are led by prayer. Like, that's strange too. Like, how did you make that decision? I prayed about it. And they're like, well, who? To who? Like, what does that mean? This is all very strange. And, that's, and we, have, we can't forget how strange Christianity is sometimes. If you're exploring the Christian faith and you've been coming for a while, you might find the songs that we sing sometimes are strange. I mean, we just finished a song where we're t- telling, asking fire to come down. We're like, are you sure you want to be singing that in a crowded auditorium? A fire come down? Like, but then the next line was like, rain come down. Okay, that cancels it out. That works then. That's okay. You can pray. Like, it's just strange. And we just stopped it. We just always forget how strange it is. Like, the songs we sing, the things we say, they're strange. And they are. And Peter makes snow like, he doesn't try to hide it. He's like, yeah, Christianity is a strange thing. And then Peter, what Peter does is he paints Christianity not just strange, but beautifully. It's the strange beauty. The Christian life is a strange life in celestial light. That's what he does in verses uh, three through five. He says, you and I that are Christian are born again into this world. We are born again into a new reality, into a living hope, not a dead hope, Not a hope in things that will die. Not a hope in things that will end. Not a hope in things that you will have to buy something, you have to buy it again renewed in two years. This is a living hope. And this living hope is through Jesus' resurrection, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this living hope is into it a new inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. It's being kept secure there, but not just that. But God, the God of heaven, is keeping us secure for it. So heaven's secure for us, and we're being secured for it. I mean, that's just so celestial. That's so amazing. That's so beautiful. And it's so true. And it's great. But, and this is where we ended last week. But all of that is true. But we still have to shop at Trader Joe's. 
Like, this sounds weird. Like, I'm this celestial being, and my hope is in heaven, and I'm renewed, and I'm born, and I'm, and I'm, 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 I'm at Whole Foods. Like, shopping for energy bars or something, or like a drink. Or like, it's just so, I'm at the hot bar. It's just weird. We ride in Muni, and we, we like walk our dogs, and we do the, all these very normal things, but we do them as celestial beings. We do this as people who, are, who live beyond, and it's just so weird. Like, how do we, how do we balance the two? And this, 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 this understanding that we're normal people, we're just normal. We wear jeans and shoes and, and, and shop just like everyone else in San Francisco does. We're normal, but then Peter says, but we're not. But we, but we are. But we're not. Well, but, but we are. But you're not. And so how do we live there then? How do you then like have this this experience of God here on Sunday morning or at your community group or at a time in prayer or something, and then you step out into the normalcy of life. Like, how do those things work together? This is what makes Christianity so strange. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he actually talks about the human life, the human soul, as being this celestial being. He says it like this. He says, it's a, it's a serious thing to live in a society of, pe- of possible gods and goddesses. He's speaking about us. Because it's really strange to live in a society, in a city, with possible gods and goddesses. This is what he means. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's like, we are so celestial, we are so other, that one day, and we see that other person in heaven, we would, if we saw them now in their future glory, right now we would fall down and be tempted to worship them. They're that other, we are. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And this is exactly what Peter does. Peter says, you are, you're celestial, you're epic, we're otherworldly, we're all these things. This is how he talks about in verses uh, four, through, 4 through 12. This is who we are, but we live here now. We are all of that, but we shop at Target and we like compare prices on athletic socks or something like that. And we, we, we browse Google Shopping and try to add one more thing to our cart so we justify getting all that stuff from a different store shipped to our house the next day. Like we do all that, but we're like this, we're, we're, we're our, our heaven, heaven secure for us, we're, we're born again in the living hope. Like how do those two things work? How do, that, how, how do those two things work in tension? We, have, we live in our culture, but we have a such glorious future and even a glorious present. This is strange. And it makes everything else seem mundane in comparison. Well, how then do we live as Christians in this culture? Well, historically, we said the very first week, there have been ways that Christians have tried to live into this world. There have historically been ways that we've tried to do this. One of the ways historically that Christians have tried to live in their culture is through separation. Like, do we separate? Now we're holy, holy beings. And how do we engage in this culture as being these holy people who are born again into living hope and our insides, our eternal state is secure and we've been changed? We have to separate. Be holy. That's what it says. Separate. I'm going to separate. And we do this because the nature of who we are and our call to be holy, Christians, what we've done is we've created this, these holy huddles. We, we, we take our, our, the, the, the things that the secular culture does and we take them and we create Christian versions of them. And we actually make a whole industry out of it. And then we separate from people and we don't let people into our world and we don't enter into their world. And we go, we're just going to be these holy people that live in this holy commune and no one can get in. And then we won't get out. That's, that's not really Jesus' model. 
when he stepped down from heaven to earth. Um, Eugene Peterson says in John 1, where uh, his translation called the message, when it says that, that um, uh, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He translates that as, uh, and the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. He like moved into a neighborhood in Nazareth. Jesus did. And then he lived around Galilee. And then he spent time around Jerusalem. Like he moved into the neighborhood. Like that's, what, that's our model. So we can't just separate. Another way that Christians have tried to engage in our culture, being these celestial beings, completely other, transformed by God, is by accommodation. Accommodation. This is, I told you weeks ago, that this is probably the most tempting thing for us to do in San Francisco. Because it's hard to live in a culture that's so potent with its loves and it's so alluring in its pleasures, Christians have often just accommodated. Where Christians, followers of God, kept their faith private and just become like everyone else. We have, we turn into people who have the same hopes and the same goals and the same passions and the same rituals. And the result here is something that even atheists, it makes atheists angry. We, have, we, we just become we, we have this form of mushy spirituality where we don't really believe anything. And even atheists would look at you and go, well, just believe in something. Like, I want your beliefs to match your actions. Mine do. Can yours? Like, they, they even get angry. Like, there's this mushy spirituality where we just accommodate so much to the world that we don't look any, any, any different. No distinction at all. The other one, I used uh, promulgate, but I think this is a better word, subjugate. Do we subjugate? Do we, do we fight is it the Christian culture versus the American culture or versus secular culture? Do we fight everything? Like all, we have Christian sciences that fight against other sciences. And we have Christian music that fights against. And so are we always in a place where we're fighting and we're going, you're bad and we're awesome? Like is that what we're always trying to do? Are we trying, are we trying to like what we want San Francisco to become is the new Jerusalem? Is that the goal? And this is, uh, uh, let me just say this. this. This has happened throughout church history through even the Crusades where there's this been this, where Christianity becomes uh, used to fight. Uh, so there's there's a, a whole like uh, Christian moral uh, majority that happens in the U.S. where they just want to fight. And so, is this the posture that we're to have? I I don't think it's any of these three. Um, Miroslav Volf, who's a professor of theology at Yale. He has written the best thing I've ever read on 1 Peter. You can find it online. It's a PDF document. It's called Soft Difference. It's the best thing I've ever read on this book. Um, in it, Wolf is trying to get at how, according to 1 Peter, in 1 Peter's world, Christians are to live in their culture. So Wolf is trying to like, immerse himself in 1 Peter and the mindset of 1 Peter and the mindset of, of the people, of uh, that, the, the way that they were thinking. And how do then <clears throat> Christians identify as being followers of God, and then live in their culture. And then he writes this. He writes this. And I quote, it's on the screen. Notice the significance of the new birth. This is what we talked about last week. The significance of the new birth for Christian social identity. Christians, i got to read this slow because it's so good. Christians do not come into their social world from outside seeking to either accommodate to their new home like second-generation immigrants would, shape it in the image of the one they left behind, like colonizers would, or establish a little haven in a new strange world reminiscent of the old, 
like resident aliens would. Does that make sense to stop there? Don't read ahead. Just like this is kind of this is the posture we want to we want to we want to tilt to one of these things. We want to make this our new home like a second a second generation immigrant would and we just accommodate completely. Or we want to shape it into the image that we left behind. We want to make this into the new Jerusalem like colonizers would. Like we want this to match exactly what we want. Get rid of all, all culture here. We want all culture to look like the new Jerusalem. Or, or we establish a little haven here. We just kind of hide out here. Make a little holy huddle like a resident alien would. He says, That's, that, we can't do that. He says, they are not, we Christians, are not outsiders who either seek to become insiders or maintain strenuously the status of outsiders. Christians are the insiders who have been diverted from their culture by being born again. We are, we are San Francisco. Like we are. We, we live here. But we're born again inside this culture. They are by definition those who are not what they used to be. Those who do not live like they used to live. Christian difference is therefore an assertion of something new, is therefore not, sorry, uh, an insertion of something new into the old from the outside, but a bursting out of the new precisely within the proper space of the old. Someone say, wow, <laughs> that's so good. Um, this is what he's saying. He's like, okay, you guys, you and I, we're, 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 we're San Franciscans. Wolf is saying that everyone is born into their culture that, where they are at. In this case, we were born into like a westernized culture, and therefore we're not an outsider. Peter's people that he's writing to weren't necessarily outsiders by the sense that they, were, that they, they didn't belong in that culture. They did belong in that culture. They're from that culture. Everyone in this room fits into the culture of San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay Area. San Francisco is a very diverse place. A secular, pluralistic place where new ideas are welcomed so that it would be very hard not to culturally fit into a place like San Francisco. We all, in some way, culturally fit. So in that sense, you and I are insiders. You and I are insiders. We're here. We're walking around. No one says, stop. You don't belong in San Francisco. And they kick us out. No one does that. We can walk through the mission. We can grab a burrito. We can walk through. We could get on open table and make a reservation at a place. And they're like, no, you don't belong here. Like, that does not happen. You and I belong here in that sense. But we are insiders that have been renewed. We are insiders that have been born again. And this new life in us will burst out within proper space of the old life, meaning our old culture or our current culture. So let me give you some traction, like some teeth for this. So Wolf continues by, by saying, okay, so how then do we live in a non-Christian environment remembering all the while that this non-Christian environment is the very air you breathe? So the potential to be blinded by your own cultural practices is very high. Meaning you will start doing the things culture does and not even know it because it's like telling a, trying to describe to a fish, fish what water is. And they're like, what, what's, what do you mean water? You live in water. And I'm like, what? I No, I live. Like, I don't live in water. I live. Like, it's just the air you breathe. It's everything. Our culture is the air we breathe. And so he says this. Christians are, in an important sense, insiders. As those who are part of the environment from which they have diverted by having been born again, and, those, and whose difference is therefore internal uh, to that environment. So here's the question. So Christians must ask, listen. Which beliefs and practices of the culture that is ours, it's our culture, what 
beliefs and practices of, of the culture that is ours must we reject now that our self has been reconstituted by new birth. It's our culture. It's, uh, it's us. Consumerism is us. We cannot say consumerism is outside of us. We are all consumers. It's the air we breathe. We are all capitalists in a sense. It's the air we breathe. It's just what we, we don't even see it. What parts of that culture, now being reborn, must you reject now that yourself has been renewed? Which can we retain? What part of that culture can we say, yeah, we can retain that? What must we reshape to reflect better the values of God's new creation? That is the, probably the, the wisest way to think about First Peter. What ways, now that we've been born again into this culture, and we all live here, and we all participate in its practices, which ones do we must go, okay, we have to reject that one. That is not a good one. Which part can we say, uh, you know what, we're going res- to retain this practice, but we're going to retain it with some reshaping. This, 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 that sentence is if you can get a, in a group of like four, five, six people and like spend the next couple of years going, as followers of Christ, we want to figure this out with all our lives. That would be, a, that would, that would be what, what, what First Peter is trying to write to. This is what we should be asking as a community. We've been born again. We've been renewed. What part of the culture that is ours must we reject? It's our culture. What, are, how do we, what do we reject? What can we retain? What can we reshape? Now, here's, a, here's an example. This is a silly, this is a stupid example. Well, I'm going to use it anyway because I, 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 I want to, I like, release some tension by just going, here's just a silly one that we'll just do together, exercise, okay? So, the San Francisco 49ers, right? Let's just uh, stop, calm down. This is Jesus Church, okay? Um, so, the 49ers, right. Okay. We, we, are, we are fans I mean, what do we now, okay, so taking this, I mean, they, 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 do we reject the 49ers now that we're Christian? I mean, they did move, <laughs> easy, they did move away, so, no, um, so what part do we reject? I know, I know that the 49ers San Francisco is not like, I, I, met, I was talking with this very, I don't know, prominent pastor in um, Alabama, and he said, Alabama football is flat-out idolatry. Does anyone from Alabama know that? It's flat-out. He goes, every football season, I have to preach against the idolatry of football. It's that. It's crazy. Now, it's not like that necessarily here, but we are, we are, we are fans. So, so we take something silly like this, okay? Example, the 49ers. What, do we reject the 49ers outright? Well, no, we can't. I don't think we can do that. I don't think we want to do that. We can't do that. But are there practices surrounding the 49ers, that we have to reject? Well, yes, there are. And this, is, this probably hits maybe one person here. I don't know. Like the, but let's just think about this silly example. But uh, obsession. Like someone who pins their entire hope, their entire world is tied to the 49ers record. You, if, you're, if, you, if that person's been born again, they have to reshape that. They have a living hope now, not a hope in a team. They have to take that and go, I can still be a fan, but my, I'm not gonna obs- they're not going to be my living hope anymore. Um, st- maybe sacrificing a family or a job or money or when they get obsessed with gambling on the game. They would have to reform that as well. What if it was a tradition in your family to get totally drunk and irate on game day? You would have to reshape that as well. 
So what parts of the 49ers would you have to reject? Well, certain parts that surround the culture of it you might have to reject. What part can you retain? Well, you retain the sport, the fun, the spirit of competition, the bringing together of your family, the bringing together of your friends to watch a game. You can retain that. What must you reshape? The place it has in our life, the place it has in your life. You have, you, see, this is just, a, I know it's a silly example, but I want, what I want you to do is realize that you have to do that with everything as a Christian. Everything. And part of the problem that we have as followers of Christ is that we don't do that with anything almost. We have to do that with everything. We have to look at every cultural practice. We have to look at purchases. Purchases. What we buy. And we're going, okay, what do I have to reject? What, do I, what can I retain? What must I reshape? We have to do that with our charity, with our relationships, with our careers, with our education, with our retirement, with our vacations, with our investments, with our children, with our children's sports. We have to do that with everything. This is what it means to be born again, and then that born againness inside works its way out. See, the culture that we breathe, as we breathe culture in, our new lungs as Christians naturally should be doing this, should be separating, reject, reshape, retain. Our lungs, our spiritual, God, new God-given lungs need to be breathing in culture and then, and then separating all this stuff. We need to be thinking about this all the time. And all of this, guys, all of this is what it means to be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. All of this is what it means to be holy. Whenever we hear be holy, we think of like some silly Christian rule. When I go, guys, be holy, we're like, uh, I, I remember someone told me one time that they went to a Christian school and they had a rule at their Christian school, no dancing, okay? And the reason, the expressed, explicit reason for no dancing was dancing is a vertical expression of a horizontal desire. <laughs> it's the best definition I've ever... It would, don't think about it too long. It's super creepy. But it's like that. It's, it's, and when we think of be holy, we always think of like things like that, like christian rules. And that's what it means to be holy. I can't dance. I can't whatever. And you kind of you, you think of these real silly rules. But when we, when we th- and we, all, all we think about when we say be holy is all we think about is separating. It's like don't do. Like separate from everything. But holiness is more of a nuanced dance of separation, of accommodation, and subjugation. It's all of them. It's us learning. How do I separate? How do I accommodate? Because Peter will then teach his people how to accommodate to the culture. He'll, in a couple chapters, he's like, okay, so when you guys live in, in, in a house and when you guys work for someone and slaves, he actually gets into all that because he's accommodating to their culture. But there's separation as well. He does all, he moves in and out of it. This is what we have to learn how to do. When we get to these parts, we'll, we'll explain them because at first read, you're like, oh, what is this saying? But what Peter is doing, he's moving in and out. He's, he's separating, he's accommodating, he's subjugating. Parts of our cultural practice we need to reject, meaning separation. Parts of our cultural practices we need to retain. That's accommodation. Parts of our cultural practice we need to challenge or we need to reshape. That's subjugation. We need to look at it and say, that's wrong. This is wrong, and that's not best for human flourishing and doesn't bring pleasure to God. I can't do that. We have to learn how to do all of those things. See, holiness, all holiness is, 
is conforming. Okay, conforming. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform. Underline the word conform in your Bibles or circle it or something or highlight it if you have a phone, whatever. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not conform. Holiness has to do with conforming or not conforming or conforming to the right thing. This is what he's saying. It's conforming to the right thing, not conforming to this, but conforming to that. The, the word conform in Greek means fashion. That's fun, right? You might want to write that down. Fashion. It, it refers to an act of assuming an outward appearance, fashion, pattern after a certain thing. It, fashion is uh, just a pattern. That's, I mean, it makes sense. Designers make patterns, and then that pattern is reproduced, and that clothing is called fashion. After that pattern, you have fashion, Right? Fashion is simply conforming to a pattern. And when two people are conforming to the same pattern, it's the worst thing. When you're wearing the same thing as someone else, it's like the worst thing. I understand how that goes. When you're conforming, that's, what, that's all fashion is. But what, what Peter means here by saying it, he says this, and it's on, it's on the screen too. He says, um, do not fashion or do not conform yourself to evil desires. What that means is an expression that means do not form your outward life to something, around something that is not representative of your inmost true nature. Do not pattern your outward life to something that's not true about you inwardly. Does everybody get that? Do not dress up outwardly with something that doesn't match inwardly. Now listen, you're like, well, what's true about me inwardly? You've been born again. Does that make sense? You're, you, you, inside, you've been renewed and you've been changed inwardly. And so what Peter is saying is what holiness is is matching on the outside, the Christian life, on the inside of what's already true about you. Look at verse 13. There's a word, therefore. That one you need to circle and underline too. Whenever you see therefore in Scripture, you should always ask yourself, what's it there for? That's not cheesy or trite or whatever. That's serious. Like, you'll never forget that, by the way. I promise. You'll see it, and you're like, oh, I wonder what's that, what that therefore is there for. Because <laughs> therefores in the New Testament are pregnant with identity. They're, everything before a therefore is true about you. And then after the therefore, it's how do I live in light of that truth? Always. It's like, here, this is true about you, this is true about you, this is true about you, because you're in Christ, this is all true, this is all true. Therefore, because that's true, live this way. It's never the opposite. It's never like, hey, you better do this, better do that, better do that, so that God will accept you. So that you can be perfect. No, it's the other way around. You have been made perfect. You, ha- you are holy. This is what is true about your life. This is all that Peter does at the very beginning. We've been born again into a living hope, a new inheritance, brand new. We have, we have life in the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, because of all of that truth, because all of that is true, then live this way. Pattern your outside life. Pattern the life. Fashion yourself according to what's true inside. This is what it's saying. Before God ever tells you what to do, he tells you who you are. That is true throughout the scriptures. Before he says, do this, he says, you are this. And that's how Peter starts. You're this, you're that, you're this, you're celestial, all this stuff. Ah, oh. And then therefore, live this way. The, the, the life of the Christian flows out of who we are in Christ. Now, let me point out something pretty obvious here. The word evil desire, that word that probably doesn't sit well with most of us. 
In verse 14 it says, do not conform to the evil desire. That's a heavy word. That's a word that can be taken as offensive if it's the first time you're ever hearing that. Evil desire. Or we've become so numb to it if we've been in the church for a while that we, it's lost its potency. So let me do this. For now, let's lay aside the word evil. Okay, just for now. We'll, we'll, we'll do something with it later. But let's just lay aside evil for a second, okay? It's a very emotionally charged word. Let's just focus on desire. Desire. Think about that word, desire. What do you desire? What do you, what do you have passion for? What do you long for? What do you aspire for? What do you aspire to be? What do you want? What do you love? What is your desire? Peter is saying, do not conform or do not fashion yourselves after the desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not, do not shape your life around your old loves. Do not shape your life around your old desires. When you lived in ignorance, ignorance is shorthand for before you were born again into the family of God, made aware of all the hope and all the promise that we have in God's eternal family. That's, that's shorthand for ignorance. Before you knew that, you had desires. Before you knew that, he's telling the, 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 the people that are getting this letter, before you believed in Christ and came into his family, you had desires. You had longings. You had loves. And your desires, for the most part, were anthropocentric. They were centered around you. They were what you wanted. They, want, they were what you desired. They were your kingdom. Your desires and your longings were things that, that could not even carry the weight of your soul. Things that you wanted so desperately and you went after and you desired and, and you took your soul and you placed your, you pressed your entire soul into these projects, entire souls into these people, entire souls into these romantic flings, these, your entire soul into your startup or whatever it was, you pressed your entire soul into your desire. We all did that. I mean, you look to this thing to find meaning. You look to, you look to this desire to find worth. You look to this desire to find purpose and identity. Things that you looked at in your life and you're like, I, I, what I want to ask you is, who am I and why am I here? Like, we, we press into those things like that. And we do this with all sorts of things. We do this with all sorts of good things. Good things like money and career and education and romance and love and sexuality and family and justice and politics. And we press our entire being into them. But when those, when those good things become the thing, when those good things that we're like, when we press all of the weight of our soul and all our desire on those things, and we make those good things the thing, the ultimate thing, it, it, it changes the nature of them. You have to realize this. Even if you're, again, if you're, if you're here exploring the faith, like you have to realize that everything that you, you, you the human soul is heavy. And when you take something, like your career or money or a relationship, and you press your entire soul into it, it changes the nature of that thing. It's like when something, when an element is under heat and pressure, it changes it. It's like that. Like the heat and the weight of your soul changes the very nature. So it's not just a, like a job anymore. It changes the nature of it. It's your life. And if it lets you down, your life is over. 
and you want from it something it can never, ever give you. And we press into a romantic relationship or like, I want you to carry the weight of my soul. And we press into it and we break the other person. This even happens in marriages. And it changes the very nature of that thing. So that thing isn't a thing anymore. It becomes the thing. becomes everything. And the scriptures say it changes it into something evil. So there's that word again, evil. Now why does the Bible use the word evil? You know why it uses the word evil? Because it's harmful. Evil means harmful. It means disastrous. That desire becomes disastrous. That desire becomes harmful. It will hurt it and you. When you press all of your desires into something, it'll destroy it and it'll destroy you. And it happens, there's a bloodbath of it for centuries. We turn that thing into something it was never meant to be evil because when we take an object or even another human and we press our eternal soul into it and we look to that and say subconsciously, maybe not even out loud, but subconsciously, behold, you are my God. When we do that, we destroy it and it destroys us. And you may have done that. You may be living that right now, but we can't stop doing that. I'm not here to say stop loving the things you love because you can't. We are, by nature, as humans, lovers, all of us. We can't stop loving like that. We can't love something completely to where it gets all of our passion and all of our desire. We want something to love that's bigger than us. Humans carry their souls almost like in their hands looking for a place to put it that will carry it and we can't help it. The human person are by nature, nature lovers. We are by nature lovers. We want to love. We have to love. Before we are thinkers, before we are believers, before we are workers, we are lovers. You know what holiness is then, right? You know what holiness is? Here's the Probably the clearest definition I can give you of holiness, if I can can remove all the stuff that surrounds that word, all the baggage, holiness is simply desiring. That's why Peter connects desire to holiness here. You used to desire that, but be holy. What he's saying is you used to desire that. Now desire God. Now love God. And as you love God, as you love God with all of your soul, he's the, actually the only one that can handle its weight. He can take your love and give you love back more than you'll ever know. Then you will become like him. That's what holiness is. It's loving Christ because only in Christ will you find a true lover who loved you back completely. Who has loved you before you ever loved him. The only being who can handle the weight of your soul. And what happens with humans, this is what happens... This is, all like, this is all observable in our world. Humans become what they love. Cat lovers become like their cats. It just happens. <laughs> it's super weird. And <laughs> YouTube has made a fortune because of those videos. Cat, like, you become what you love. You do. If you love your job, you become your job. And you know how weird that gets, right? If you love someone, you become like that. You become, we are lovers as humans. And then what we do is we direct all our attention and our affection to this thing, and then we become like it. And what Peter's saying is, you want to be holy? Because God is holy, love God, and you shall be like God. You will become like what we love. We will. So we have to love. This is what Peter is saying here is love God because God 
is love. And when we love him, we'll be like him. And the call here is to become like God. How in the world is that possible? By loving him. By loving his kingdom. By loving the things he loves. By desiring him. But by desiring him more than everything else, and then everything else loses its like allure, and it just becomes a thing. And so I'm not saying quit your job. I'm like make your job just your job, and make God the object of your affection, and make your spouse just your spouse, and make God the object of your worship. Make your hobby just a hobby. Make 49ers just the 49ers, and let God be your source of joy and delight. And then when you do that, you will become like God, and you will love God. Now, how do you do this? How in the world? Do you just like, okay, emotion, love God, love God, love God. Like, how do you love God? Okay, so I can go a million different directions here, but I'm going to go one. What it might mean for you right now is for the first time, let yourself be loved by God. For the first time right now, let yourself be loved by God. That's what it might mean for you. You've never let yourself be loved by God. Like, I'm not lovable. There's no way this God can love me. I'm so afraid of the implications. Like, you would just let God love you. Because what happens is, when you allow the love of God to flood your heart, you cannot help but love him back. You just can't help it. There's nothing you can, like, like when you receive that kind of love, and the scriptures are full of, uh, of this sort of stuff. The love of Christ draws us to repentance. Like when we're loved by God, we're like, I don't want anything else. I want to turn from everything and turn to you. It's when th- that Paul prays that God would lavish the love of the Father on his church. Because he knows when the, lo- the Father lavishes his love, we want to love him in return. It says that he first loved us. It says that this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. He is the very definition of love. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like, when we let ourselves be loved by him, we cannot help but love him back. And so as we move into a time of response, this is what I ask of you. I'm gonna ask you to, if you can, allow yourself right now to be loved by God. Open your heart up to be loved by God. Say to your soul, soul, open up and let the love of God come in. Would you close your eyes with me and just sit here for a second. Don't move around. Just close your eyes. Lord, and maybe you you need to even take a posture. Just no one's looking around. Eyes are closed. This posture of like your hands are open, just kind of receiving. Might even do it sneaky-like because you don't want to be, I don't know. And this posture, we say, God, together, would you lavish the love of the Father abroad in our hearts? I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would, maybe for the first time in here, open our hearts to Beloved by God, there is no greater lover. And we ask, God, that you would shape us into your image, that we would be holy, that we would be holy as you are holy, that as we love you, we would become like you. Thank you, God, that you love us. You love us, Lord.
that you even said that you love us, God. No matter what we've been through, what we've done, what's happened to us, no matter much, how much hatred has surrounded our lives, you have loved us. Would you pour out your love? May we receive that and be different, and be changed by your love. May your love change us. In Christ's holy name, amen.